If you'll go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we are looking at verses 8 and 9 this morning. Last week, we studied verses 6 and 7, and we saw how Peter encouraged his readers in the midst of their suffering. They're undergoing some kind of fiery ordeal, some kind of suffering, and yet Peter wants them to know that as Christians, suffering does not have the last word. No, if you're a Christian, suffering doesn't have the last say on your life. And that is because Christians can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering. And Paul uh, or Peter explained that our trials do not diminish our salvation. Our trials are only for a moment. Our trials are designed by God for our good. And at the revelation of Jesus Christ, our trials will give way to praise, glory, and honor, which God will award his people. That is amazing. And in today's text, Peter is going to further encourage Christians as to what are the surest signs of a true relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's stand out of respect for the reading of the holy word of God, and let's read our text together. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's ask our Lord to meet with us. Oh, Father in heaven, we come to you needy, We come to you hungry. And Father, we come to you with an expectation that you desire to meet with us this morning. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit who even fills this place. God, we know that as we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, you are here. But we want to hear from you. And we want to be changed by you. And I pray that you would fill your people with love and joy on a level that we've not experienced before. Lord, let us live the faith that we profess. And I pray if there be anybody who maybe claims to have a relationship with Christ, but they do not, not in the genuine sense that you describe to us in this text, we pray that you would meet with them in a saving way through your son, Jesus Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as... Paul was writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11. He is describing some of the sufferings that he endured on account of his faith in Jesus Christ. And he said this in recording for us a number of the sufferings. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That was a beating. That was a whipping that he received, and he couldn't receive more than 39 at a time because the law of the Jews forbid that, five times. Do you think that left a mark? Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Paul was a man who bore in his body the marks of Jesus Christ. And later when he was writing to the church at Galatia, Paul knew his faith was on trial. Apparently, There were some among these Galatian Christians that considered Paul to be the one who was in the wrong because they thought that his faith, his teaching, wasn't Jewish enough in character. 
And Paul says to them, have I become your enemy by not telling you the truth? Galatians 4.16. And he's much perplexed by their skepticism toward his faith. So it's no wonder that when Paul concludes his epistle to the Galatians, in chapter 6, verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the brand marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul uses the word stigma to describe the marks that he bore in his body. Paul carried about in his body physical marks, the stigmata of Jesus Christ. They were marks that proved his faith was genuine. He genuinely knew Jesus. He had the marks to prove it. Now, evidence for something like the Christian faith is important because we can't see faith. Faith itself is an abstract quality, of course, and that's where evidence comes into play. The good thing is, the Bible is clear, that faith, true faith, always leaves its mark. And it leaves its mark on a true Christian. And in this morning's text, Peter will share with us what are the inner marks, what are inner marks, inner evidence of true faith. These are not physical marks like Paul's describing in Galatians 6.17, but these marks are inner evidence of true faith. And I want us to see at the outset of our study here in verses 8 and 9, what is the big picture of what Peter is doing. Remember, verses 6 through 9 are kind of a paragraph, and the overall subject in verses 6 through 9 is on his reader's faith. We know that because in verses 6 and 7, Peter refers to the proof of their faith. And in verses 8 and 9, he mentions how his readers are believing in Christ and also obtaining now the outcome of their faith. His overall subject is faith. But in verses 8 and 9, it's clear that Peter's specific focus is going to narrow upon two inner marks or evidences of true faith. And th- this is clearer perhaps in the Greek text where the two main verbs are you love him and you greatly rejoice. If you look at verses 8 and 9 in your English translation, you'll see a lot of action words there. But actually, only you love him and you rejoice in him, those are the only two main verbs. Everything else are participles, which just understand means they are subordinate ideas to those two main ideas. The main idea that Peter's after here is love to Christ and joy in Christ. Those are the true marks, the inner evidence of true faith. You know, after tens of thousands of people were converted in the first great awakening, it eventually became plain to Christians that along with many who had been genuinely converted in the church were many false converts. Many had come to the church who didn't truly know Jesus. And so Jonathan Edwards, a man who was mightily used of God in the first great awakening, undertook to write a treatise concerning religious affections in which Edwards sought to distinguish between true and false conversions. True and false faith. And Edwards began his treatise with this statement from 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And you know, Edwards concludes, after commenting on this verse, that true religion... Scriptures teaches true religion, by which he means true faith in Jesus, is in great part consisting 
of holy affections. True faith in Christ in great part consists in holy affections. Peter would agree. That is his point in verses 8 and 9. It's that there is an inner evidence of true faith. There is an inner evidence of true faith. True faith in Jesus Christ is not merely confessing some set of doctrines. True faith in Jesus Christ will be evident in holy affection. And Peter will give us today, out of this text, two holy affections, two inner evidences which evidence true faith. The first affection which Peter gives is supernatural love to Christ. True faith will be marked by supernatural love to Christ. Look at verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Your faith will be evident in this love for Christ. And this love for Christ overcomes not having seen him. Recall from verses 6 and 7, what was the obstacle to faith? It was trials. It was some fiery circumstances. But now... In verses 8 and 9, the obstacle is lack of sight. And Peter says, though you have not seen him, and he's conceding the fact that his readers have not seen Jesus at all in Jesus' earthly ministry. Of course, he's writing to these Christians about 30 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven. These Christians in Asia Minor, they live miles, they live far away from where Jesus ministered in Palestine. And so like us, these Christians were not eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry. They didn't see any of his miracles. They didn't witness his suffering. They had no witness of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. They hadn't seen Jesus, and so surely there were some Christians at this time who felt, well, we're at a spiritual disadvantage for having not seen the Lord. Because after all, Peter did. And can you imagine how tempted some Christians would be in Peter's time to say, you know, Peter, that's very well, that's very good for you to follow Jesus to the extent you do. You saw him. He appeared to you. You were one of his apostles. You were a witness of his sufferings and resurrection. But we haven't seen Jesus. We're at a disadvantage. You know that nowhere in the Bible is lack of sight ever recognized as a legitimate reason not to trust God. The Bible never acknowledges lack of sight as a legitimate excuse for unbelief. God has called you to believe, and he has given you his word, and it is a rational word, and you are rational to believe God and take him at his word. And actually next week, by the way, in verses 10 through 12, we're going to see that Peter's going to go on to say, hey, you who live on this side of the cross, you are very privileged. You live in a privileged time in redemptive history. But first, Peter wants to draw our attention to what is the real underlying issue, and that is this, that true love to Jesus Christ is not predicated on seeing him. It's not predicated on having witnessed his earthly life. This is because true love is supernatural. True love sees Jesus with the heart. True love sees Jesus with spiritual eyes, as it were, with eyes of faith. True love will love Jesus, though unseen. Yes, this love to Christ is no ordinary love. And I know it's easy to say, I love God, isn't it? It's easy to say, I love Jesus. It's easy to put that bumper sticker on your car or wear the t-shirt. But Peter knew this. And let's remember that when Jesus 
sat with Peter there on the shore of Galilee, he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times, do you love me? And you know what? Peter understood. Jesus wasn't after words. He wasn't looking for simply a confession. Jesus was after true love. And likewise, Peter isn't commending his readers because of some mere claims to love Christ. Neither is he commending some sort of ordinary love. Peter's commending a supernatural love. This love is supernatural. In fact, two facts suggest this love, is, this love to Christ is supernatural. That is to say, it does not come naturally to sinners. First, we know it's a supernatural love because the object of this love is spiritual. Notice how Peter qualifies this love as love to someone unseen. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And this isn't like, oh, I love Jesus even though there's an ocean between us and he lives on the far side of the world and I've never seen a picture of him. It's not like that. This is, I love Jesus even though he's not physically present on this earth. I remember my wife and I talking to a very troubled girl several years back and I asked her the question, whether she loved Jesus. To which she replied, how can I love a person I can't see? How can I love a person I've never seen? You know, that's a great question. It's actually impossible. It's impossible for the natural man, that is the unregenerate man, to truly love the Christ he cannot see. Genuine love for the supernatural Christ requires a supernatural work of God. And that is why our God tells us in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that he would perform a surgical operation on the heart of his people to enable them to love him the way they ought. True love requires the supernatural work of God. How can we genuinely love Christ without ever having seen him? We can genuinely love him because this is no ordinary love. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's the work of God in his people. And we know this love is supernatural because its object is spiritual, but also we know this love is supernatural because the supply of this love is continual. Peter uses here a present tense verb to describe a love that is continually at work in his readers. He is saying, though you have not seen him, you are continually loving him. This wasn't a phase. This wasn't some religious mood. This was their life. This was who they were. It was their identity. They truly loved Christ. I'm sure we've all met persons who had some religious experience. Maybe they prayed a prayer at some revival meeting or some church somewhere and they prayed a prayer to receive Jesus and maybe this experience they had or this prayer they made even initiated a season of religious fervor for Christ. But when you talk to them and you live with them a little bit, you get to know them a little bit more, you see that the season's over. Eventually that season of love for Jesus is over and it's like Jesus is like last year's fashion statement. You know, Look, that's not the love that Peter's talking about here. He's not talking about having a passing fad or temporal religious phase, wearing the Jesus t-shirt or putting the bumper sticker on, or just going to church every now and then. True Christians will continue in their love for Christ because this love is continually being supplied to them. Now, how do Christians 
continue to receive the supernatural love. Well, the Bible teaches in 1 John 4 that love is from God. Love is from God. And God continually supplies to us this supernatural love by giving us his Holy Spirit to permanently indwell us. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God gives his people the spirit of love. Did you know that in Galatians 5, where the fruits of the Spirit are listed, the very first fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It means it's the work that God the Spirit produces in His people. Not once in a lifetime. Continually. That's the work of the Spirit of God who permanently, continually indwells His people. And so it is that as a mother has natural affection for her children, so that when she loves her child, we don't think that odd or unusual. We expect that. And, and we just anticipate that. Because we consider it her nature to do so. Her nature to love her children. In the same way, true believers have a spiritual nature. By which they cannot help but love Jesus. That's biblical. That's the whole point of what God was saying in the old covenant where I'm going to make a new covenant with you and I'm going to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and you will love me because it will be your nature to do so. Christians, true Christians, true faith cannot help but love Christ. And it continues to love Christ because that love is continually being supplied. Is that you this morning? Or is love for Jesus a fad? Like the came and went. This is a probing question. Now, that's not to say Christians don't have to nurture love to Jesus. It just comes automatic. It's not automatic, but it is inevitable. If if you can understand the distinction there. Christians do have to nurture love to Jesus, but we will nurture love to Jesus. We will feel compelled to nurture our love to Jesus because it is our nature. As a Christian, as a regenerate soul to do so, So Peter describes what is not only a supernatural love here, but he says it's a supernatural love. He shows us it's a supernatural love that is manifestly evident in one's life. This love is manifestly evident. Obviously, Peter knew that these people loved Jesus. How did he know that? Well, we find seven marks of supernatural love in Peter's letter that appear elsewhere in Scripture. So we could make a case throughout the New Testament The first of these seven marks in this manifestly evident supernatural love to Christ is suffering for Christ. It's willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. Recall from verses 6 and 7, these Christians were willing to suffer for faith in Jesus. And you know, that's one way that true love to Jesus will be evident. Are you willing to be mocked, rejected, to be excluded? your faith in Jesus? Are you willing to suffer loss, loss of comfort, loss of convenience, uh, loss of respect, maybe loss of life? What are you willing to suffer for Jesus? That is the measure of your love for him. True love to Jesus is love that follows the master to the end. It suffers for Christ's sake. A second mark of supernatural love is desiring to serve Christ's church. Peter will say at the end of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 22, he tells the Christians, fervently love one another from the heart. But then he supplies the ground for this command in verse 23. He says, 
for you have been born again. He's saying you love fervently one another. Look, that, that, that's real. This is genuine feeling and affection for one another that actually is moved to action on the behalf of one another as God's people. And you know how Peter can say that command? He says, because you have a new nature to do so. You have a new heart. You've been born again. Do you love Christ's people? Do you long to be with and bless God's people? Look, I can't overstate that. You don't truly love Jesus if you don't love his church. That's biblical. That is a mark of this supernatural love to Christ. Do you love his people? A third mark of supernatural love is hungering for Christ's word. The fact is, we listen to those we love. If you really love someone, I'm not talking about mere claims and professions of love. If you truly love someone, you will want to know them. You will care about what they think, what they desire, who they are, and you will desire to explore them, to examine them. So let me ask, do you desire to listen to and know the word of God? Is that your heart? I'm, obviously, you're all here, and that is a, a blessing. Peter would say to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 2, that um, as newborn babes of the word, they were to desire the sincere milk, the pure milk of the word of God. And the word of God that we hold in our hands is the word of Christ. Colossians 3.16. Do you love Jesus? You don't love Jesus if you don't love his word. You don't love the Bible? Let's not have any of this nonsense about I love Jesus. A fourth mark of supernatural love is treasuring Christ's person and work. 1 Peter 2, 7, Peter says, Now to you who believe, this stone, speaking of Christ, is precious. Now that's the NIV rendering. It's a little bit clearer there. But Peter's saying, if you truly love Christ, this precious stone, he will be precious to you. Is Jesus precious to you? What is he worth you? Is he like how Jesus described in Matthew 13, that pearl of great price, that when you find it, you go and you sell everything you have to obtain it. And you go your way rejoicing because you know you just got the greatest deal in the world. Is that Jesus Christ to you? Or does he have competitors? Do you treasure Jesus more than anything? A fifth mark of supernatural love is rejoicing in Christ's coming. We saw some of that last week from chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And later in this epistle, we'll see it some more too. These Christians are anticipating the revelation of Jesus Christ. What about you? Is that your joy and rejoicing? Is that your ultimate hope? That's a mark of supernatural love to Jesus. We long to see him. A sixth mark of supernatural love is proclaiming Christ's message. At 1 Peter 4, 16, Peter's readers were glorifying God in Christ's name. And you know, it's true. Sometimes you can tell someone is genuinely in love simply by listening to how they talk about their lover words can do that sometimes our words can just bear our heart and you can hear from a christian and you can hear they talk about their lord you can hear they talk about their savior and you can say there's a man there's a woman that truly knows and loves god do you speak about christ is that your desire do you share Christ with others? If you love him, you will not be ashamed of him, but you will speak of him. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul would say the love of Christ compels us to witness 
The love of Christ compels us to share the knowledge of him with others. The seventh and ultimate mark of supernatural love is obeying Christ's words. Obeying Christ's words. In chapter 1 and verse 14, Peter will describe his readers as obedient children. Children that are obedient to God. And Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus said, you want to know who really loves me? He says, it's those who don't just have my word, they keep my word. Do, do you desire to please Christ? How do you view his commandments? Are they loathsome to you? Or are, are they the joy and rejoicing of your heart? 1 John 5, 3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, this is all critical, because you have to wonder, in a world, in a culture like ours, where many people profess faith in Jesus and love to Jesus, you have to wonder about the integrity of a lot of this love. Because it is love without any evidence. Oh, they claim to be born again. Oh, they talk about Jesus here and there. They show up in church. But there's no affection. When, when it comes to proving their love, they aren't very eager to do anything. They won't lift a finger for Jesus' name. They won't lift a finger to help a brother or sister in Christ. They show no eagerness in the word of God to learn and grow. They don't talk to anyone about Jesus. And you have to wonder, is this love that isn't manifestly evident real at all? Peter acknowledges the true faith will be marked by supernatural love to Christ. These people hadn't even seen Jesus, but they loved him. That was evident. Peter acknowledges another mark in addition to his reader's supernatural love to Christ, and that is inexpressible joy in Christ. True faith will be marked by inexpressible joy in Christ. Verse 8 continues. He says, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This joy in Christ overcomes our inability to presently see him. And this is because we know we will one day see him. That's true for one thing. He says, notice, though you do not see him now. That's an important word. Peter's already conceded. His readers had no prior witness of Christ. Now he's conceding they do not presently see Jesus, but he adds this word now to imply that there is a day coming when you will see him face to face. Even in verse 7, at the end of verse 7, he's acknowledged Jesus Christ will appear. He will be revealed. And at his revelation, you will receive praise and honor and glory for true faith in him. So we can't see him now, but we can still rejoice because we know we will see him later. Alongside the fact that these Christians are not now seeing Christ, though, Peter says, but you are believing. He says, but you believe in him. They can rejoice, and this joy in Christ overcomes their inability to presently see him because their joy in Christ, it's grounded in faith. It's not grounded in having seen Jesus. It's grounded in their faith in Jesus, in believing in Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to doubting Thomas in John 20, 29? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, Jesus could say that because he knew that those who are truly believing without seeing are showing that their faith is real. And where there's real faith, guess what? There is real salvation. Man, if you have real faith in Jesus, that is a reason to be excited. Because that's a real salvation. Consider yourself blessed. And by the way, verse 8 here is not suggesting, like some have thought mistakenly, that a relationship with Christ demands some sort of irrational, blind leap of faith. God does not demand irrational faith. Now, God does demand here, we're seeing, faith without sight. We can't see God. We can't see Jesus Christ. God demands faith without sight. But he does not demand faith without knowledge. True faith, in the biblical sense of the term, presupposes a rational knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's evident when people say, I believe. You have to ask them, what do you believe? (laughs) What do you believe in? And if they truly have a true rational faith in Jesus, they will be able, in some way, to explain they believe in Christ the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself in his word. So Peter's not promoting a blind, irrational sort of faith. Our faith in Christ must be rational because it must be grounded in the rational word of God, despite our inability to physically see Christ in the present. But we see that this joy in Christ, then, is no ordinary joy. And Peter is going to make that very plain to us in describing it in four different ways. He says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Notice, first of all, Peter says this joy is of a spiritual nature. Now, how do we know that? Well, the verb translated greatly rejoice is a word we saw in verse 6, where he said, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice. Same Greek word, agaliao. It's translated greatly rejoice. And I mentioned last week, that it is a word that in extant Greek literature is not found. Secular Greek writers do not use this. But this term is employed exclusively by the New Testament writers who limit its usage to a spiritual joy, a joy that is directed and oriented to God. Let me give you a sense of how this term is used throughout Scripture. It is the joy of the Virgin Mary who exclaimed in Luke 147, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Same word. When she found she was going to give birth to the Savior. That's this joy. This was the joy of the Philippian jailer at his conversion. In Acts 16.34, we read that this rough and tough Roman jailer, after being born again, he brings Paul and Silas into his house. He sets food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is the joy of a sinner's salvation. This is the joy Jesus promised in Matthew 5, 12 to all who suffer for his namesake. Acts 5 is an example of this. The apostles have just been flogged. They've just been warned very sternly by the Jewish council not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. They let them go. How would that make you feel? Well, we read Luke says they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. How? Why? They were rejoicing that they had been worthy to suffer shame for his name. And they just kept on preaching Jesus day in, day out. 
That's this joy. This is the joy Jesus himself felt when he witnessed his father's work in his disciples. And Luke 10, 21 tells us that he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual joy. This is the joy of the saints at the revelation of Christ's glory. Peter will say in 1 Peter 4, 13. And this is the joy that John describes. Revelation 19, 7. It will be the joy of God's saints at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This Agalia o joy, this greatly rejoicing joy, it is a spiritual joy, joy of a spiritual nature. But Peter further qualifies this great rejoicing in Christ. He says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. This joy is inexpressible. It was Aldous Huxley who said, after silence, that which comes nearest to the inexpressible is music. And this is one reason we sing and make music here as we come together to worship our Lord. Because we recognize there are things that words and poetry cannot adequately express. But even songs, even music cannot fully express this inexpressible joy. When you stand before the grandeur of something like the Grand Canyon and you just taking the immensity of what is before you, it's like there's something within us that just screams of the wonder and the awesomeness of what we're seeing. And yet when you open your mouth, words fail to express what it is you feel. That is somewhat like what this word is describing, the inexpressible joy Peter is after. This is much like the inner witness then of the Holy Spirit, who fills the Christian with this joy inexpressible. I remember years ago in college, attending a prayer meeting with just a few of us. It was in the basement of a church, and we were crying out to God. And there was a, a sense of joy inexpressible that in our weakness, God was there. He was meeting with us. And it was so real that when all of us left, we just didn't want to end. When we left that meeting, we were urging one another, don't ever forget, don't ever forget what we experienced. Because we, we tasted a joy of heaven. It was a joy inexpressible. Romans 8, 26 says, the Spirit of God helps our weakness, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. How is this joy inexpressible. How is this joy inexpressible? Because the object of this joy is Jesus Christ. It is a joy in Christ, and he is inexpressibly wonderful. We can never ultimately fathom how wonderful he is, and so we fail to express this joy that we experience in Christ. And Peter adds, this joy is full of glory. The Greek word doxato, translated full of glory here, indicates a heavenly quality to this joy. It is a glorified joy. It is a joy that can taste, as it were, some of heaven. John Peterson was a pilot during World War II and, and a devoted Christian. He later became a songwriter, and during a Bible conference in 1961, as he was inviting folks to share their personal testimonies, what Christ had done in their life, an elderly gentleman stood to his feet, and John described it like this. He said, as he spoke, his face glowed 
Especially when he told us that night when he came to Jesus Christ. The way he expressed it was, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. And John was so gripped with those words that later that week he used them in as an inspiration to his song, Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul, describing the day of a Christian's conversion. True joy because of true faith. Is that your testimony? You may consider yourself to be a non-emotional person. That's just not like me, to really wear my emotions on my sleeve. You know, that's okay. God didn't make us all the same. I'm not expecting you to all be, you know... Um, equally expressing yourself when it comes to joy. But let me ask you this. Do you know that there was ever a time in your life where you, you got a hold of this fact that God, our God, the Creator, entered into this world to give His life for yours? Do you believe that? If you really believe that, if you've gotten a hold of that fact, let me tell you, I don't care who you are, you will experience this joy. But it may be somewhere, somehow, someone's not really believed that. Someone's not come to saving faith in Jesus. Look, if we believe that God will deliver us from death, give us eternal life, we will taste a joy full of glory. But Peter's not finished. He says that this joy these Christians were experiencing as they're rejoicing, he says, verse 9, they are obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This joy is of a spiritual nature. This joy is joy inexpressible. This joy is full of glory. But now he's saying this joy is presently a reality. He's saying you are presently obtaining the outcome of your faith. Now the ultimate outcome of true faith is salvation. Which he qualifies as the salvation of your souls. It's an eternal salvation. In what sense then are Christians presently obtaining their salvation? That's an important question. This is critical. Certainly, we are waiting for the full manifestation of our salvation at the appearing of Jesus Christ that Peter has just alluded to in verse 7. But Peter claims that even though we're not now seeing Christ, we can even now receive, be obtaining a portion of our salvation. You know, sometimes Christians live as though salvation is an entirely future phenomenon. And according to what Peter's saying here, that's mistaken. I remember hearing a story about a simple man immigrating to America. He had paid a great deal of money for a passage to sail across the Atlantic. And in his suitcase, he had packed along plenty of bread and peanut butter. Given the high cost of his fare... Uh, his ticket cost him so much, he decided he'd do his best to save what was left of his money and uh, eat frugally. And once he got to America, he'd have a chance to make a living and relax the budget a bit. Well, as the voyage went on, he, he enjoyed the cruise much and seeing the scenic ocean. But as the voyage progressed, day after day, eating his peanut butter sandwiches, he was just growing tired of it. In fact, what made matters worse was that during breakfast, lunch, and supper hours, he could smell the delicious food being cooked and served aboard the vessel. Well, he did his best to put it out of his mind, but finally, on the last day of his voyage, he decided he couldn't stand it anymore. He was just so hungry for something greater. He was just so loathsome of that tired, same old peanut butter 
sandwich. And so he made his way down to the dining hall and he asked one of the waiters there what it would cost for just one meal. The waiter asked to see his ticket. After looking it over, he said, Sir, all of your meals are included in your fare. It is part of your passage. Go enjoy yourself. You see, what a shame. This man had access to all the benefits he desired in his journey. But though he was granted access, he did not access them. And he was failing to experience what was already available to him because he didn't realize what he truly had when he got that ticket. You know, unfortunately, some people look at their salvation like it's simply a ticket from here to there. It's just a ticket to heaven. No, it's not. Not according to the Bible. Not if you got what Peter's talking about. True faith will be manifest. It will be marked by supernatural love to Jesus and inexpressible joy in Jesus. But you know there are Christians that look at their salvation as though it's simply a future phenomenon. Let me ask you this. If you, if you are presently united to Christ in the way the New Testament describes, do you presently experience the realities, the blessings, the joys of Jesus? Or are you thinking that that is something you simply have to wait until the future to experience? Are you presently enjoying the benefits of new life in Christ? For Peter, where there's true faith, there's going to be true joy. And this joy is not a future hope simply, but it's a present reality. Salvation's not a fire escape. It's an ongoing relationship with God through Jesus, in Jesus. So in this text, Peter shows us there is an inner evidence of true faith. True Christian faith will be marked by supernatural love to Christ and by inexpressible joy in Christ. And these verses go beyond our confession then to our affection. There's a story told of a, a Christian blacksmith named Ivan Raboshavka who lived in a small village in Tsarist Russia and a small group of Christians were meeting in Ivan's home when the police showed up. Suddenly, unexpectedly, accompanied by the village priest. They burst into the house, they disrupted the meeting, and being the leader of the home, Ivan was mercilessly flogged until he was half-conscious. When asked later if the whipping he received were not exceedingly painful, he replied, it burned, yes, but it was nothing compared to the burning of Jesus' love in my heart. That is a mark of true faith. That is true affection for Jesus. That is the affection of these Christians in first century Asia Minor to whom Peter is writing that during trials they are loving Jesus, they are rejoicing in Jesus greatly, inexpressibly, full of glory, and even presently, right now, on this side of heaven. That was the reality of their faith. So that Peter had no doubt. These were the children of God. Now in closing, let me ask, how can we say it is that we truly know Jesus if we lack affection for him? How can you say you truly love Jesus if you lack affection, true affection for him? True faith in Christ is not proven by a profession of faith. A profession of faith doesn't always mean a genuine possession of faith. We saw this morning from James chapter 2, even the demons 
can give an orthodox confession, but there's no relationship with God, is there? There's no affection for the Lord. True faith is not proven by a season of religious zeal. Look, any false convert can, like, like that parable of the soil that Jesus talked about, they can grow up, they can spread up overnight, they can do incredible things for the Lord and only to fall away because there is no genuine root in Christ. A religious experience does also not prove true faith. Some will speak of some dream they had, some incredible experience when they were young or whenever. Maybe some amazing sequence of events. But you realize these are all not sure marks of true faith. The devil can counterfeit any of that. He can counterfeit all of that. And our hearts are deceitful. We could be deceived about that. But let me tell you, there's one thing, thank God, that the devil cannot counterfeit. And that is true, holy affection for God. Supernatural love to Christ, inexpressible joy in Christ, has no counterpart. It only comes from God. And Christ cannot be glorified in our lives if we are lacking these affections to him. Do you want to know where you currently stand with God? Do you know, want to know what is the state of your religion? Do you want to know what is the state of your faith this morning? Your affections will show. Do you have true love to Jesus? True joy in Jesus? That's the truest sign of who you really are. True religion goes beyond our confessions to the root of our relationship with God. True faith, a true relationship with Jesus, will be evident in our affections toward God. Let's pray.